Sorry to disturb your conversations. Um, welcome to January's Skeptics in the Pub. Um, is there anyone who's never been to one of these before? Stick your hands up. Welcome, indeed. Um, basically, the format for tonight is our speaker will speak for about 45 minutes to an hour. We then have a 20-minute break so you can buy more beer. And then we have a question and answer session where you can grill our speaker to your heart's content. <laughs> um, normally, this is the bit where we say, turn your phones off. We don't, because we like to read your Twitter feeds. Our tweet, our hashtag is Oxford Skeptics. But if you are going to do that, please put your phone on silent. Um, so, without any further ado, uh, let me introduce our speaker, Dr. Andrew Steele. Hello. <laughs> Hello, can everyone hear me? Can everyone hear me okay? Excellent, All right. Um, hi, as uh, was just mentioned, I'm Andrew, and what I'd like to talk to you about today is a project that I've been working on for the last few months, um, looking at UK science spending and global science spending, in fact. Uh, it's called the Science-Gram, and I hope that by the end of the talk, you'll be with me in thinking uh, that more spending on science makes sense. I'd like to start with a few statistics, just to sort of give you a bit of a feel for uh, where this is coming from. Um, cancer is a disease that kills almost a third of people in the United Kingdom. Almost a third of deaths are attributed to cancer. And yet we spend just £10 per person per year looking for a cure. And what's slightly surprising is that that's probably the least shocking number in health research. If you look at heart disease, that kills about 15% of people. And yet um, we spend just £3 per person per year researching that. And stroke kills about 10% of people, so not a lot less. But we spend 37 pence per person per year trying to work out what causes strokes and how we can treat them. So when I found out these numbers, I was pretty shocked. It looks like the amount of money we spend on science is completely out of proportion to the size of the problems that science is trying to solve. And in fact, this is a trend that sort of repeats across all different areas of science. And I'd like to give you a few different examples of how these, how these amounts of money are so small. Um, the most important thing is that I really want to make this into a political issue. I think that uh, the, the way to solve this science funding problem is almost entirely through the government. We need to have more public funding of science, and actually we need to have more thought about how to get private money into science as well. So I want voters to care about this stuff, I want politicians to know that voters care about this stuff, and I really want, it, uh, I really want people to understand the numbers in the same way that I think I've come to over the last few months working on this. I think the most interesting thing about the science is the methodology that I've chosen. And that's uh, been inspired by um, the, the, non, the complete lack of sense in figures that I read in the media. So often you'll read a news story and it'll tell you that the NHS budget is £120 billion. Pounds, or you'll sit here that um, uh, Starbucks has paid £20 million pounds of the corporation tax back. And those numbers don't really make sense to me. All I hear is numbers ending in Ilion and think, whoa, those are huge. And... You can't really compare them to each other except by looking at them relative to one another. So you can sort of say, oh, well, the NHS budget's 120 billion. This Starbucks tax thing's 20 million pounds. Clearly, the Starbucks tax thing isn't going to make a massive difference to the NHS budget. But other than dividing them by each other, unless you've got all these numbers in your head all at the same time, it's very hard to know what they all mean. So what I've done is divided lots of different kinds of UK public spending, including that on science, out into pounds per person per year. And I think this makes a personalised budget, which makes a lot more sense, because the individual figures are meaningful, as well as the comparisons between them. Um, I think I've tried to convert it into a system of units we can all understand, basically. And as Stalin might have said, a pound is a sort of disappointing sandwich in a uh, chip shop, but a million pounds is a statistic. So, um, just to give you a bit of an idea, this is a really useful rule of thumb I've been using when I read news stories. The UK population is about 63 million, um, and that means that if we want to spend a million pounds on something as a country, that's 1.6 pence each. And if you want to spend a billion pounds on something, that's about 16 pounds each. So when you divide these numbers down by the huge population of the UK, they become a lot more intelligible. The other thing that news stories often fail to tell you is how long a project is going to last. So you might hear that the Crossrail project, for example, is going to cost £15 billion to put this rail link across the north of London. But it doesn't tell you how long it's going to take to build or how many years that cost will be recouped back over, how many years the economic benefits will last. So again, you've got to try and look for somewhere in the article where it tells you how long a period of time this budget is over in order to make sense of it in this framework. So let's look at government spending uh, in this way. 
The government spent in 2011 to 12, so the last financial year, about £700 billion on all of our behalves. And if you divide that by the 63 million people who live in the UK, that means that the UK's per capita budget is about £11,000 per person per year. Now, I've given a sort of broad brushstrokes view of how that breaks down here as well. So the biggest single item on the budget is this thing here. It's called social protection. That's about £3,900 each. That's things like pensions and benefits and free school meals and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, other really big ticket items, we've got healthcare here. That's about £2,000 per person. Um, education costs about £1,000 per person. Defence, about £700. And then I've got a big catch-all other category on the, on the other side of the diagram. Obviously, that's all the loads of different government departments that aren't included in those four big categories there. Um, now, if you want to look at scientific research... The entire government spend across all departments on research and development is about £160 per person. The first thing to notice is that's very, very small compared to all these other numbers. It's about just a bit less than 1.5%. So that number does look quite tiny just, just looking at it in the abstract. But I still don't really know if that's big or small, um, if I'm being fair here, because it's quite hard to imagine the, the monolithic range of challenges that this entity science is trying to solve. So I don't really know if 160 quid's a lot. You know, if I got that back in tax every year, I could buy quite a cool gadget with it. So that still feels like it could be quite a lot of money. Um, since I've got a bit of time, I'm going to go through another couple of items on here. Um, this £11,000 isn't all money the government's got. You've probably heard of the budget deficits. The, the government are actually spending quite a lot more money than they receive in, in tax. In fact, the budget deficit is about £1,900 per person per year at the moment, which sounds like a hell of a lot of money. Um, economically, I think whether that is a lot of money or not is quite a knotty question, so I don't want to talk about that too much. But still, it's a huge, huge sum. Um, and one of the things people say might save the deficit is if we were to eradicate benefit fraud. But actually, the government's official figures on benefit fraud say that it's about £30 per person per year if benefits are given out either fraudulently or in error. So as you can see, that number is a heck of a lot smaller than that 1900 It's not really going to make a dent. Another way you might try and tackle the deficit is by collecting all that naughty dodged tax. Um, that comes to about £500 per person per year. So again, that's, that's a reasonable contribution. It is worth trying to claw some of that stuff back, but it's not going to eradicate the public spending black hole. Um, and from those two types of dishonesty to quite a third, the MP's expenses scandal, you might remember from back in 2010, um, the total amount of money that we as the general public put toward the expenses of people in Westminster is 23 pence per person per year. And uh, the amount that was claimed fraudulently comes out as £0.02 per person per year, 2 p per person. Um, and incidentally, in order to find out that figure, they had to do a, a governmental inquiry, which cost 1.9 pence per person. So you can see that actually, we managed to get four weeks of front pages, basically, out of this really tiny figure. And to give you an idea of how small that 2p is, if I wanted to show you that as a single pixel on this screen, I'd actually need 200 HD monitors right next to each other to get a single pixel out of that. Um, so that, I think, actually exposes one of the shortcomings of this methodology as well. Um, in that, obviously, MPs' expenses wasn't entirely about the money. The fact that you know, the people in power were being dishonest is, is, is an important aspect too. But nonetheless, I think something that's such a tiny fragment of our national budget shouldn't probably have dominated headlines for quite so long as it did. Okay, so that's all the stuff that I want to say about the budget in general. Um, now I'm going to talk about specific areas of science. And the first thing I'm going to talk about is health research. So this is just a graphical representation of those things I said to you at the start of the talk. Um, this is a picture of 10 people who are representing the entire, uh, the, all the people who die in a given year. And so what colour they are shows how they died. About 30% of them die of cancer. And we spend, as you can see at the bottom, £10 per person per year researching that. Uh, similarly, heart disease, 15% of people die of. We spend £3. And stroke, 10% of people die of. And we spend 37 pence per person per year researching it. Um, so, so far, so rep repetitious. Um, I'd, I'd like to mention, first of all, that these are actually the government and the charity spends combined. So anyone who is worried that we uh, hadn't included charity here, we have. In fact, that's one of the reasons that the cancer research spend is quite so big as it is. Most countries in the world don't spend as much as we do on cancer, because five of those £10, approximately, come from cancer research charities. Cancer Research UK is one of the biggest charities in the United Kingdom. It's about half as big again as Oxfam. So it's a really massive organisation that ploughs a lot of money into research. So these figures are actually quite inflated by the charity spend. I also think that looking at this can give you a way to contextualise what these numbers mean, because you can look at that cancer spend and say, well, 
I'm spending £10 on something that's got about a third of, uh, that covers about a third of my chance of dying, right? So that means my total caring about research that has the chance to save my life is about £30 a year. That doesn't sound like very much, but if you do the same thing with stroke, then obviously that's about 10%, so you multiply 37p by 10, uh, that means you care about research which might save your life to the tune of £3.70 a year, which, again, seems slightly pathetic. In fact, not to be patronising, but I just thought I'd put up a slide showing how much it is that you contribute towards stroke research every year. You'd, you'd think that was a bit pathetic, giving it as a tip in a restaurant, but there it is. That's 37p, everyone. Um, so, so far I've sort of looked at the deadliness of diseases to try and give you a proxy for how important they are. But, of course, not everything that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, there are quite a lot of diseases that have a massive effect on your quality of life, but don't actually tend to go on to be written on your death certificate. So an example I've chosen to illustrate this is dementia. Now, it's very hard to capture uh, the sort of distress and other things that you might get associated with dementia, so I've chosen to look at the economic cost, because that's much easier to quantify. Um, and as people progressively lose their mental faculties with this disease, or with this family of diseases, we obviously have to look after them uh, with our healthcare system. We give them medication, we give them social care. And that comes to about £160 per person per year. Now, that's not per dementia patient, let me just emphasise. That's every single person in this room, every single person in the rest of the pub, everyone else in Oxford in the UK is paying £160 toward the care and medication for people with dementia. That's not the only cost of dementia, though. There's also a very large set of indirect costs. And in fact, for dementia, that outweighs the amount we spend on healthcare. So the fact is that people have to give up work when they get dementia and perhaps their friends and their family. There's a, an army of volunteer carers out there who are giving up jobs and ceasing to be economically active. And all these different kinds of indirect costs added up together come to about £200 per person per year. So that whole thing there, everyone in this room is paying £360 toward the fact that dementia exists, basically. And the amount we're spending on research is 80 pence per person. That line is actually in proportion to the uh, big box just above it there. Um, and this kind of methodology you can apply to other diseases as well. So obviously things like cancer, heart disease, stroke, which we were looking at earlier, they've all got economic costs associated with them as well. And if you tot up all of those direct and indirect economic costs, you get about £800 per person per year. The amount we spend on research, £13 per person per year. So again, these are in proportion. It's completely... Um, the, the magnitudes are completely out of whack here. Now, I don't want to give the impression that the only place we should be putting our research money is trying to cure specific diseases either. There are also other uh, different science questions that are very important in the field of health. And I'd just like to talk about one for a minute, which is uh, research into human ageing. Now, um, a lot of these diseases, you'll be aware that you get much more likely to get dementia or cancer or stroke or whatever as you get older. And the reason for that is that the ageing process, the chemical changes that happen inside your body as you get older, um, cause you to become more susceptible to these diseases. And one way that we can try to quantify that is to look at how much, how much more likely you are to die as you age. And obviously, you all know that as you get older, you're more likely to die, right? But quite how much is pretty surprising. This is a graph showing your age versus your chance of death in a given year as the big, brightly colored wedges. Um, I'm 27, so let's call it 30. I've got about a 1 in 1,700 chance of dying in the next 365 days, and I'm pretty cool with that. Um, and as it happens, most of that chance is actually from what are called external causes of mortality. So I might fall under a bus, or I might take my own life. Um, most of the things that are going to happen to me aren't because my body ha is turning upon itself and I'm getting cancer or heart disease or anything like that. Whereas if I make it to the age of 80, and medical care is similar to how it is now, then I might expect to have a 1 in 20 chance of dying in the next year. That's almost 100 times more likely than I am to die this year. And that's just because of this accumulated chance of getting all these different kinds of age-related diseases. Now, this graph doesn't capture the whole problem with getting old, right? Because as well as getting cancer or heart disease, you can just become more frail. Or you can get a less deadly disease, like you could get macular degeneration and go blind. And a lot, a lot of these different kinds of diseases fall into this age-related bracket, in that although they have other, uh, other causal factors that can result in you getting more likely to get them, so I could change my diet or my lifestyle and try and reduce my odds of heart disease, the basic thing I need to do is get younger, which is obviously pretty hard. So the way that science can tackle this is that we're finally starting to understand the range of cellular, of molecular, of tissue-level changes that cause the ageing process and cause us to be more susceptible to these diseases. And so if we can develop treatments that could either repair some of these problems or at least slow down the rate at which they accumulate, we could have a massive effect on these diseases of late life, which have huge economic and social consequences. So you'll be pleased to know we spend 40p per person per year looking into the basic biology of ageing. 
I think that's pretty much it for health spending. And now I'd like to talk about um, a completely different area of science, but one that's still very important to our lives, which is energy. Um, this graph here shows, again, it's an area graph, and we've got the amount of money that we in the UK spend on energy, again, in pounds per person per year. It's £2,200 each. And then that's compared to the little square up in the top right-hand corner, which is the amount we spend on energy research, which is just £5.30 per person per year. It's less than a quarter of a percent of the amount that we spend on energy. So firstly, you can see that there's a massive economic incentive to increasing the amount that we spend on this research. If we think that um, energy research can make, our, um, can make fueling our lives just a quarter of a percent cheaper, we should probably be spending a bit more on the science than we are. But there's also a massive environmental incentive, because that £2,200 is primarily spent on fuels which are polluting our atmosphere, which are emitting a lot of carbon dioxide and causing dangerous and expensive climate change. So there's a huge environmental uh, imperative to look into other kinds of technology that won't emit this carbon dioxide as they generate our energy. Now again, that £5.30, um, it's not very, a very big number, but that's spread over all the different kinds of energy research you can think of. Everything from optimising wind turbines to looking at how a whole power grid might function to um, you know, getting the carbon that's coming out of a coal-fired power station and trying to put it underground before it reaches the atmosphere. So there's this whole range of research projects. But again, I'd just like to focus on one to try and bring home the absurdity of these figures, and that is uh, something called nuclear fusion. Now, when you mention nuclear fusion to people, they normally say one of three things. Hasn't that been 30 years away for the last 30 years? Hasn't that been 50 years away for the last 50 years? Or hasn't that been 30 years away for the last 50 years? Now, what this cynical aphorism fails to convey is the fact that we've not seriously invested in fusion for the past 30 or the last 50 years. In fact, the global fusion research budget is significantly less than a dollar per person per year. Here in the UK, we spend about £1.30. Now, I'm going to try and motivate why we might want to spend all this money. Um, fusion is an absolutely incredible source of power. It's the same thing that powers the stars in the sky and the sun. And um, it's the most energy-dense source of fuel in the entire universe. But you might have noticed the problem. We want to get it to work down here on Earth. Stars are very, very hot. In fact, if you want to get fusion to work down here on Earth, you need to heat up uh, hydrogen gas to about 150 million degrees C, which is about 2 degrees per... per Sorry, I got carried away. Um, it's a very, very high temperature. So, this is the inside of the jet reactor, which is down in Cullum, uh, in Oxfordshire, a few miles south of us here. And uh, the good news is we've done it. We've managed to get uh, 16 megawatts, which is quite a reasonable amount of electricity, or quite, sorry, quite a reasonable amount of energy, I should say, um, out of uh, the process of fusion for almost a second. So, you can see the obvious and massive engineering and physics challenge here is to develop this technology such that it can work for weeks or months or years, as you'd want a nuclear fusion power station to do. Um, So why bother? This is obviously quite hard. Well, the benefits would be absolutely enormous. I think one of the chief ones is that nuclear fusion has uh, an almost inexhaustible fuel supply. It's literally powered by seawater. And the world's oceans contain enough fuel that if we kept using the same amount of energy as we do now as a civilization, fusion could power us for the next 10 million years. Now, the most optimistic estimates for fossil fuels say perhaps a few centuries at most. And that's before you consider the environmental consequences of burning a few hundred years of coal, oil and gas. So there's a massive incentive to develop fusion for that reason. Um, It's also going to be a very great thing for energy security, because rather than having all our fuel concentrated in politically volatile parts of the world, anyone with a coastline suddenly has as much power as they could eat. And um, finally, although it's got nuclear in the title, there's actually no long-lived radioactive waste from a fusion power station. So this sounds great, but how far away is nuclear fusion? Well, it's all right, scientists have got a plan. And uh, the succession of reactors that are going to follow JET um, have all been costed up. And obviously this is a bit vague, because we don't know whether they're going to work or not. But the scientists think that developing nuclear fusion will cost somewhere in the region of £60 billion. Now that does sound like quite a lot of money to me. But then, again, if you divide it out into pounds per person per year, that picture changes quite a lot. So what might we divide it by? Let's think about dividing it by the population of the rich world. So if you take that 60 billion quid and divide it by the 1.1 billion people who live in the high-income countries of the world, that comes out at 50 pounds per person. I'd put my 50 quid on the table right now. And actually, there's reason to believe it's not quite as big as that number even, because um, the ITER collaboration, which is the collaboration that are looking into this next-generation fusion power station, uh, sorry, fusion reactor, um, 
represents over half of the world's population. And if you divide that by three and a half billion instead of 1.1, you get about 16 pounds per person per year. Now, so not per person per year, 16 pounds in total. That's it. 16 pounds, we've got fusion. Um, obviously, it's not fair that the poor farmers in India should be paying as much as us rich, rich Westerners. So it's probably somewhere between 16 and 50 pounds. And you have to take the estimate with a bit of a pinch of salt because we don't know if it would work. But frankly, compared to the amount of money we're spending on energy, this is really small beans. And so if we could just get the political will together, we could probably crack nuclear fusion. It could power us pollution-free pretty much forever. So now I'm going to um, turn off the slides for a minute. Um, I've told you a lot about health and energy research. They're both very applied areas of scientific research. Um, what I'd like to tell you about now is blue skies research, basic science, science that doesn't have a specific technological or social or economic goal at the end of it. And um, it's actually much, much harder to make catchy comparisons about blue skies research because the very same things that make it worthwhile that we invest in blue skies science make it very, very hard to make cool statistics out of it because the results that you get often happen 10 or 20 or 50 years after the first discoveries, and they're often very diffuse. You can't always point to the exact thing that results in something happening, and sometimes they're totally unrelated to the research that originally uh, caused them to happen. So, again, I'm going to try and focus on a single example to give you a bit of an idea of the scales involved here. Um, you're going to talk about the Large Hadron Collider. Now, that is a massive physics experiment. You've probably heard of it because in the middle of last year, scientists think that they discovered something called the Higgs boson. And if they can confirm that that's actually what they saw, that proves a mathematical model about how the universe works that was originally devised in the 1960s. So that would be an incredible scientific and mathematical coup if it was correct. But it sounds pretty intellectually decadent to build this enormous machine just to test this sort of frivolous bit of mathematics. But actually, it's very, very cheap. So um, discovering the Higgs boson can tend literally cost peanuts because the LHC uh, is actually funded by a collaboration of, again, international, it's a load of countries getting together and paying subscriptions. And the UK subscription to CERN is about £1.50 per person per year. And the UK peanut market is about the same as that. So the, the discovering the Higgs boson did literally cost peanuts. Um, and... Although we don't actually know, there, there may never be a um, technological development that results from the Higgs boson. But CERN, the lab where the LHC uh, is currently housed, um, has got a long history of spin-outs that have had massive effects on civilization. Um, so, for example, the particle accelerators that were at the cutting edge of physics in the 40s and 50s and 60s are now installed in a lot of hospitals where they're used for cancer treatment. Um, all these, a lot of these particle accelerators use an industry as well. So they've, they've permeated throughout the world. There's, there's about 20,000 particle accelerators in the world in industry and healthcare and all sorts of different fields. But the biggest spin-out from CERN is one that was completely un unexpected and totally, really, unrelated to particle physics. It's the World Wide Web, which was developed at the lab in the late 1980s by a guy called Tim Berners-Lee, who was trying to come up with a way to share data between scientists. And... Um, it's, it's, you know, it's quite a feather in the cap for the particle physicists. It almost didn't require CERN specifically. If, if you had just a lab with a load of bright people and a network of computers, anyone could really have come up with this thing. But it's completely transformed uh, the social structure and the e economics and how business works uh, 20 years later. So it's, that's, a, that's a pretty bizarre spin-off. That's not something anyone could possibly have expected. It would be pretty weird if the guys who are trying to renew the CERN subscription back in the late 80s had said there was a one in a million chance of our lab developing something that will revolutionise human society. But actually, that chance is implicit in a lot of basic research projects. Um, a lot of them fail, but when they go right, it's crazy. And I think that investing in science is a lot like an investment portfolio that you might have on the stock market. You want some safe stuff. You want some slightly optimizing solar cells to tweak them to make them a bit cheaper or more efficient. Or you want to be getting a drug that you know works and trying to reduce the side effects or increase its efficacy. But really, you also want some mad risky stuff. And if we support this stuff collectively as a society, the benefits are enormous. And there's even some evidence that we don't support risky stuff enough. Um, a good example of this is what's called the knockout mouse. Now, in spite of its name, it isn't actually a champion wrestling rodent. A knockout mouse is a mouse that's had all of one particular gene deleted in every single cell in its body. And it was originally developed in the middle of the 1980s by some scientists working uh, on a grant funded by the National Institutes for Health, which is one of the US um, big public funders of science. And it was developed on the express condition that they did not waste the research money developing this ridiculous knockout mouse idea. 
Now, thankfully, the scientists completely ignored the direct instruction of the funding organisation. And it's a good thing they did too. A lot of biological research is now based on the fact that we can observe what genes do by looking at the difference between a mouse that has all its genes and a mouse that has one missing. It's even allowed us to make models for human diseases inside uh, the mouse system, which, which is really, really useful for human health. And actually it netted the researchers behind it the Nobel Prize in 2007, along with a letter from the NIH saying, we're really glad you didn't take our advice. So really we do need to be funding this risky stuff. Um, I also don't want to give the impression that serendipity is only important in basic research. It happens in applied research too. And a really good example of that is Viagra. Now, Viagra was originally developed by a pharmaceutical company, so they were looking for drugs, but they were looking for uh, a drug that would reduce hypertension or angina. They were looking for something to reduce blood pressure. And it took until they got to human trials. They gave patients this drug, uh, down in Swansea, actually, and those patients uh, didn't have their blood pressure reduced, but some of the male patients did notice it increasing in a certain part of their anatomy. Now, that was a completely unexpected effect, and although the research was directed at something entirely different, it created an entirely new genre of drugs and uh, had a massive economic and social impact as well. So being open to surprises is one of the most important factors when you're coming to think about funding scientific research. (coughs) Excuse me, research. Um, Okay, so I've sort of told you a lot about how small science is compared to big things. Now I'd like to tell you about how similarly sized science is to similarly sized things. So I'm going to show you some examples of uh, government and personal spending that are on the same sort of size as science and see if that gives you a feel for anything. Okay, so this, um, I've got my favourites up there, energy, cancer, heart disease and stroke research, you're all across the top of that picture. I've also chosen two items of public spending uh, that are approximately the same size as bits of science. It's quite hard, finding things that are that small, that are discrete within the government and you've heard of, is, is quite a difficult exercise. So I've chosen slightly at random the BBC and passport renewal, so sending off your passport every 10 years and paying some money for the nice man to send you a nice new passport back. Um... I don't think either of those things are that expensive. I think that you know, the, what the work the BBC does and having a document that allows me to go anywhere in the world are probably worth these relatively small amounts of money to me. But what really surprises me is the conflict of perspectives. So if I instead think about how much they cost in terms of scientific research, I can look at the BBC and go, you know, is, is having news and Strictly Come Dancing really six times more important than researching a disease that kills a third of us? Now, I'm not suggesting that we slash the BBC budget and don't invest in science. What I, what I really think about this is that when this conflict of scales doesn't happen quite so hard anymore, I think we might be getting somewhere with how much we're funding scientific research. Um, just for fun, I've got a few personal spending examples as well. Since we're in the pub, I thought I'd talk about alcohol. And uh, it turns out that the alcohol market in the UK is about £600 per person. And again, that's man, woman and child. So there are some people in here who probably aren't drinking all that much. Um, Again, I'm not trying to be some kind of Puritan who thinks we should all go teetotal and fund science, um, because that would be crazy. But equally, if you were an alien and you touched down on Earth and you're trying to understand this bizarre society around you, you might log on to the Office of National Statistics website. And the first thing you'd think is, God, this species has got a lot to learn about web design. But if you eventually found the thing that you were looking for, you'd realise that actually we spend 60 times more on alcohol than on this deadly disease. And you can look at the other diseases and they're even bigger factors. So this alien is going to think we're all crazy. Um, similarly, weddings. This is quite a good one because it's exactly the same size as the public spend on R&D. The wedding market in the UK is worth £160 for every single one of us. In fact, if you take the price of the average wedding and divide it by the average length of a marriage, it's over £700 a year, which... I mean, again, I don't want to be a killjoy, I don't want to be unromantic, I know it's your special day, but is it really worth that much more than these research, uh, pieces of research into life-threatening conditions, into energy? Um, and finally, loo roll. Uh, we spend £17 per person per year on toilet paper. And again, I wouldn't want to live in a world where there was no loo roll and 10% more science. That's not a cool place to be. But what's astonishing is, I don't think I'm as efficient as I could be with loo roll. I think I could use 10% less. And bafflingly, that's enough to make a significant difference to some of these parts of scientific research. Possibly into bowel cancer or something, I don't know. Um, so it's just incredible. Again, there's, there's this conflict of perspectives. When you look at these small numbers, they are small. Like 17 quid a year, I don't mind that I spend that much on a loo roll. But when you look at it through the lens of science spending, it's huge. Okay, so that's pounds per person per year. I think we've basically exhausted that thing. Um, now I want to talk about aggregate spends, because there's no point spending even £10 on cancer or £5 on energy if we're never going to crack 
these damn problems. Um, so I'd like to give you the example. Oh, hang on, I forgot to mention this. Don't worry, 250 quid's worth of alcohol is tax. That's more than we spend on science. So actually, maybe booze is good for science. So keep drinking. Um, good. Yeah. Sorry. So I want to talk about the war on cancer. Um, so the war on cancer was declared in 1971. It was uh, Richard Nixon, president of the US at the time, gave a speech. He didn't actually use the words war on cancer, but he said, let's massively increase the spending on cancer. Let's cure it in the next five years or next ten years. Um, hindsight is brilliant. We know that it didn't work. Cancer's much harder than we originally thought. And in fact, in the last uh, sort of 30, 40 years, since 1971, we've spent £100 billion pretty much trying to crack cancer out of public money. There's been quite a lot more as well from private investment, but let's go with the public stuff because that's what I've been concentrating on for this talk. Um, again, that sounds like a massive amount of money, but I'm going to do my favourite thing, which is dividing it by stuff. Um, the first thing we could do is look at how many years of life have been added to cancer patients. So this is from a paper in the US. It says that a cancer patient in the US can expect to live 3.9 years longer uh, from diagnosis than they did in 1988. So that means that's not just from uh, so that's not just from 1971. We can, this is sort of a bit of a, a generous estimate because we're assuming all that research has gone into that number. Okay, so we're going to divide it by 3.9. We're going to find out how much it costs per year of human life. Now, obviously, we don't all get cancer. I said about a third of people suffer from cancer at some point in their life. So we can probably divide that number by three to give us the approximate prevalence of cancer. That's going to give us how much an average person, how much longer an average person could expect to live as a result of this cancer research. So that's obviously about 1.3 years. And finally, I'm going to divide it by the population of the high-income countries again. And it comes out um, that it's less than £100 it cost us to add a year to the life expectancy of everyone in the world to develop treatments that could do that. Um, I've, the reason that I've not given it as an exact number is that I think all these numbers sort of have a little bit of error on them and it's hard to know exactly. But certainly it's very, very cheap. Like whether it's 50 quid or 150 quid, I'd still put that money on the table right now. Um, okay, so that's given us, we've now got that number, which is we're going to say 100 pounds to increase the life expectancy of everyone in the developed world by a year. I'm going to say it's costing uh, 50 pounds each to develop fusion, that's, uh, but that's about 60 billion pounds in total. Let's look at some other aggregate items of world spending. Um, the smallest one I've got on here is the Large Hadron Collider, actually. It's uh, 2.6 billion quid to find the Higgs boson. Um, it's quite small in comparison to, for example, the London 2012 Olympics, which set us all back in Britain uh, £9 billion. Pounds. There's the Crossrail project I mentioned at the start, 15 billion quid. That's slightly more tunnel than the LHC, but not very much. And I bet the trains aren't going to travel at 99% the speed of light. So I think the LHC, by that measure, is pretty good value. Um, Fusion, again, I've just marked on 60 billion quid. And that's very small compared to, for example, the UK bank bailout, which cost us nearly a trillion quid at its peak in 2009. Um, So we could have developed Fusion many, many, many times over or even saved quite a lot of years of human life. Um, But even that looks small compared to the wealth of the world's 100 wealthiest individuals who are between them worth 1.2 trillion pounds, which means, according to that down there, the Apollo program, they could send us back to the moon, they could develop fusion, they could add a few years to human life expectancy and still have change for a few mansions. So it's just incredible how much money these 100 people have. Um, one of my favourite numbers that I found out is iPhone revenue. Since 2007, um, Apple have made, uh, have, have net made 123 billion quid out of those shiny silver rectangle things that you guys like carrying around. Um, and in fact, most shockingly, over half of it, 65 billion quid, is profit. Um, which just goes to show that if you can differentiate your product in some way and make it appeal to slightly more affluent consumers, you can do really rather well out of the phone market. Um, and what I find quite surprising about that is that we could easily have developed fusion with that much revenue. Um, it's, tw- it's more than twice the estimate, so you'd think, you know, al- almost certainly we could have a working fusion power plant for that much money. But the difficulty is just financing it. If you can sell things in small units that consumers can buy and which they're cool and they want, then uh, that only cost them a small number of pounds a month, then they'll buy them. But if you've got a massive monolithic project like a fusion reactor, you just can't get the finance unless you go through government because no one's going to want to pay for their tiny little square tile on the lining of the fusion reactor. Um, another few numbers. The Manhattan Project, which was the project to develop the nuclear bomb, uh, cost us 11 billion quid, so that's quite cheap for saving us all from Hitler. Um, I've got Hurricane Katrina damage on here, so that was the most expensive hurricane in US history uh, in 2005. And um, that cost 70 billion pounds. And again, I don't want to draw any false equivalents with science here, but al- although we don't want to be not repairing hurricanes and spending it on science, this is clearly the amount of money that governments and individuals and insurance companies do have in their back pocket if a disaster happens. But we just don't tend to spend it preemptively. 
Um, another interesting hurricane fact that's actually too small to go on this diagram is that the US spend what a lot of people would consider quite a lot of money on hurricane uh, prediction research. They look at weather forecasting specific to hurricanes. They spent 250 million quid uh, on trying to develop more accurate forecasts in the last 20 years or so. And last year, uh, sorry, the year before last now, in fact, Hurricane Irene, um, uh, so Hurricane Irene didn't have to have a section of the coast evacuated because of it, uh, which saved £400 million, pounds, which is more than the £250 million pounds spent over the last 20 years on hurricane research. Um, so again, that's another area of science that massively pays off. There's the UK public debt, £1.3 trillion, that's nice and big. Um, but nice and small is the Human Genome Project. That's that tiny dot there, in case people can't see it, which cost us 3.4 billion quid. It's widely regarded as one of the biggest collaborative scientific projects that we've had. Um, but the economic return on the Human Genome Project was recently estimated at half a trillion pounds. Now, again, that's the sort of number it's quite hard to necessarily attribute everything back to and do it precisely. If those guys were wrong by a factor of over 100 the Human Genome Project would still have broken even. So clearly, science punches significantly above its weight in investment terms. It makes that 50% profit on the iPhones look puny. Um, If you want really big numbers, the best place to go is the US Department of Defense. And so we've got the Iraq War here. The cost to just the US was £1.8 trillion. It's about $3 trillion. You probably heard that estimate. Um, And that's three times world health research spending, so on all diseases across the entire globe, uh, from 1981 to 2010. So they could have paid for, well, give or take uh, 90 years of world health research for the same amount of money they spent trashing Iraq. Um, And the other figure that I got from the DOD is the Department of Defense missing money. Um, Donald Rumsfeld, back when he was in charge, announced that there were $2.2 trillion worth of money unaccounted for on the DOD books. They just didn't know where it had gone. And um, that is pretty phenomenal. You convert it up to modern money. It's £1.9 trillion. My favourite fact about this story is the day he chose to announce it. The speech with this information inside it was given on September the 10th, 2001. So in terms of amazing days to announce a gaping hole in your military budget, I mean, it's just food for the conspiracy theorists, isn't it, really? Um, Two really massive numbers now, which are bigger than anything we've seen before, just to give you a sense of uh, enormity, I guess. The EU public debt from all the countries in the European Union is about £8.9 trillion. And world GDP, that's the only number on here that isn't an aggregate, because obviously we generate that every single year, is £43 trillion. So again, you're sort of getting a sense that science is much, much smaller than any of these things. Okay, so that's, uh, that's the really huge. Let's try and zoom back in a bit. I want to tell you a bit about how individual countries compare to one another. Um, and this is a graph and a map of the top 20 governmental research and development spenders in the world. Um, you can see the UK just scrapes in there at 18th place. We spend about £134 per person per year. Um, the eagle-eyed will notice that's a bit different from the 160 I quoted earlier. That's just because these statistics are from a source that's uniform across the world. So there's a slight methodological difference, but let's not worry about that too much now. Um, So Germany, another country in the EU, spending £198. Uh, The US, a country widely regarded as having very small government, spends more than twice as much as we do on governmental scientific research. And Norway, who are taking the lead, spend £299 a person, which is well in excess of twice what we spend. Um, I think the message that we can take away from this is that we could spend an awful lot more on science, at least without damaging our economy, because all of these countries are sort of a roll call of the strong economies of the world, and yet they're all spending more, and in some cases significantly more, on science than we are. So clearly it's not going to negatively impact your economy. Um, And while correlation doesn't equal causation, I think that you can sort of think, well, maybe some of this scientific research is in fact benefiting their economies as well. So uh, if you look at these figures in more detail, there's pretty good evidence that scientific research is good for the economy, uh, as we've seen with, for example, the Human Genome Project. So it's really clear that we could be spending more as a nation. Um, So the big question, of course, is where are we going to find the money? We're in these straightened economic times, and so the obvious question that anyone's going to ask me afterwards if I don't address it first is, how do you plan on funding this mad excursion into science? And the answer is, I actually don't think it's that hard at all, because it's such a small quantity of money... Um, The first way you could think about doing it is by just taxing people. And I think if I gave this talk to enough people, they'd probably realise that actually I want to give a bit more than £10 a year on council. I want to give a bit more than £5 a year on energy. And um, we could certainly ask people to to just contribute a small amount of extra money, use a bit less loo roll, and try and pay for this £160 a year that way. But obviously there are other ways to fund this money as well. Um, We could try and get money out of other government departments which are going to stand to benefit from the research that's conducted. So, for example, defence, the defence budget's about £700 a year. 
Um, and you could say that defence is actually going to benefit a lot from our spending on, for example, energy, because if we have increased energy security around the world, we'll have less conflict due to resources. We have less climate change. Again, we have less conflict. So a small amount of the en- uh, defence budget could be re- redirected to energy research. And you can have a similar argument about lots of different government departments which stand to benefit from the fruits of science. <clears throat> and finally, we could actually just add it to the deficit. Because the deficit is £1,900 per person per year. It's le- it's, um, the science budget, therefore, is less than 10% of that deficit figure. And the reason that we take out the deficit, sort of in, in economic theory, is that because we can make more money out of the investments we make on that debt than the interest we pay on that debt, it's a good investment. And I think it's really clear from the numbers that I've shown you that science is a phenomenally good investment, much better than a lot of stuff you get in business. So... Even if we had to add all of that onto the deficit, I don't think it would leave us completely economically screwed. So I think there are lots of ways we could get the money, and particularly if you get a small amount from lots of different places, it could be absolutely transformative to the amount that we spend on science. Um, I want to tell you a bit about the politics now, because in order to make this um, a political issue, we need to understand what the government and what the other political parties think about science. And actually, this is an area where it's a bit murky. They've got a very strange relationship with science. Um, In terms of the public, there's an awful lot of support. If you look at opinion polls, a lot of people trust scientists. A huge majority of people think we should fund basic research, even if it hasn't got any direct and obvious uh, near-term economic outcomes. So the politicians are clearly aware that people like science in general, but they're also aware that people aren't familiar with the nitty-gritty of these numbers. So back in 2010... Uh, science and politics collided quite hard when the coalition government did the comprehensive spending review. They looked at all the different areas that government spending is being allocated to and every single one of them had to justify their existence. And actually there was a very large campaign on behalf of science. Uh, A group called Science is Vital was set up and they marched on Westminster and they submitted an enormous petition to number 10 um, because the word on the street was that we were going to be looking towards 25% cuts across the board. No department was going to be spared. And no department is going to be treated any different to any other. And yet, the day before the official announcement, the science spend was leaked. And it was leaked that there was going to be a flat cash settlement. We were going to get the same amount of money we had the year before. There was much rejoicing in the scientific community over that, because it sounded like we'd got off scot-free. We'd have, you know, we were faced with 25% cuts. We'd come away with 0% cuts. But actually, the government had been a lot cannier than that. Um, first of all, of course, it's flat cash, and everyone already knew that. Uh, as time goes on, inflation obviously erodes the cash that you hold. And so we think by 2015, because inflation has been quite high for the last few years, we're going to be looking at a sort of 15-20% 20, cut anyway, just from the fact that our money has been eroded. But secondly, the government redefined the science budget before freezing it, which meant that they actually took out a huge sum of money, which is called the capital spending budget, which is used to buy things like pieces of equipment and laboratory space. And um, that wasn't ring-fenced, that was massively cut. So it looked like we were going to be staring down the barrels of a couple of billion pounds gone missing. But as it happens, the government have again been really politically canny about this. They've drip-fed us the money back in a series of happy, happy announcements. So, uh, in fact, in the autumn statement this year, George Osborne announced a sweetener, £600 million for science capital investment in a series of areas. And it's really, really hard, as someone campaigning for science funding, to stand up and say... That's terrible, George. You've just given us back money that we were already owed. You just look incredibly churlish and childish because he's just committed this enormous amount of money to research. Um, Now, across the the wider political spectrum, you might look at what the party policies are on science funding. The answer is they haven't got any. The only party that's even close is the Liberal Democrats, and they've got uh, a very strong science spokesman, a guy called Julian Huppert, who has got a motion that was passed at the Lib Dem conference. It's not actually policy, but it's sort of on the way. And amongst other uh, measures related to science, he wants to increase the budget. He wants to increase it by 3% per year for the next 15 years. Now, to me, that's still a bit unambitious, because if you imagine the cancer research budget, my favourite number from this talk, uh, I said it was £10 a person a year. £5 of that comes from charity, remember. So next year, if we implemented this policy of a 3% rise, we'd be spending £10.15 per person per year on cancer, and by 2027, we'd be spending a whopping £12.50. Now, I don't really feel that that's addressed my concerns, I don't know about yours, um, so I really think that even the Lib Dems, who are the strongest on science, have got a lot more ambition to find in uh, coming up with funding numbers. I think, as I said at the beginning, we do need to make this a political issue. This isn't currently the sort of thing that people go out and vote about because there are other things like the state of the economy, the state of the health service, the state of education that people care more about. 
And whilst perhaps it might not be the central tenet of what a party runs for government on, we've got to make it clear that having a coherent policy about science, and in particular science funding, is the sort of thing that might sway your vote slightly from one party to another. Um, we need, I think we just need politicians and voters to be aware of these numbers as well. Going through this process, I've done it... Um, I've done it quite naively, really. I've just looked at the numbers, divided by them by 63 million, and every time I've been shocked. And I don't think that anyone else who listened to this would fail to be shocked. I think they're incredible numbers. When you look at the size of the challenge compared to the size of the investment, it just doesn't make any sense. And particularly when you look at the size of the challenge, the size of the investment, and the sort of returns, the social, the economic uh, returns that we can get on investment in science just massively dwarf the amount of money that we'd have to put in to get those returns. So I think it's really important that we get, um, get this more widely known. Um, so here we are. That's how, why I think more spending on science makes sense. Um, if you want to read more, then I've got a website which was finished this afternoon called scienceagram.org. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter. I don't think we've got any followers at the moment, so that's good. Uh, at Scienceagram, and we've also got a Facebook page. If you want to talk to me, I'm that person in the corner on Stato on Twitter, and Andrew Steele at Kodiki is my website, or just obviously ask me some questions later. Thank you. Everybody got their pints? So, we're back for questions and answers with um, Andrew Steele. Um, stick your hand up if you have a question, and we'll try and get as many of you as possible. Your graph about the average uh, death rate at age, yes. is that adjusted at all for lifestyle or anything, or is it just straight it's, death figures of that age? It's straight everybody in the UK, so it's, um, it's the entire... I've just looked at the mortality statistics in the United Kingdom. There's a, the ONS publisher table that shows how many people die of which condition, and so I've just averaged it out according to the number of people still alive at each age. Okay. By the way, um, if anyone else has got questions like that, obviously I'm very happy to answer them, but also... The data are all available on the website. I've got this enormous Google spreadsheet that makes my little brain hurt. Um, so if you want to know any of the data or any of the sources, then just check out the website. Well, it sounds like I should read your website for my next <laughs> question then. Um, no, no, go for so it. So you showed, that you showed um, defence spending next to research. A lot of defence money goes on research anyway. Did you sort of... Uh, yeah, so actually the uh, defence research is a massive component of that £160. £27 per person per year is spent on defence research. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, that is taken account. It's a very small component of the £700 budget. Uh, what's a bit, I, I'm quite ambivalent about defence research, actually, because apart from being a, perhaps a bit of a natural pacifist, um, it's actually the only form of research that looks interna by international comparisons to reduce your economic output because you're spending money on things that could be spent on things that are more worthwhile. And while it's not by a very massive amount, so it's probably one of the less bad things the military do, um, it's still, yeah, it's, it's not a massive component and it's, it's not very good for the economy. Yeah, so you, can, you could probably argue that rather than trying to add money to the deficit, which is politically probably not likely, <laughs> you could maybe cut that money from the defence budget instead. Yeah, definitely. Could you advocate that? For example, yeah. I think the, the trouble with the defence budget, I always feel politically, is it's a bit of an easy target. People think, oh, you know, he's just going after the defence budget, because that's what all the bloody lefties do with their hippie ideals, and they're thinking we can all just have ribbons rather than guns. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely a target that I think would be a pretty legitimate place to try and get some cash from. Are there any other questions? Oh, there's one. Oh, I'm not sure if I really need this, but thank you. Regarding your central thesis that we should be making this a political kind of movement, how would you suggest that we best to make this a political movement? Because I think pretty much everyone here is probably in agreement with you, broadly speaking. So what would um, you think? How to make it a political movement? I think it's hard. Um, one thing I really want to do is just draw attention to this as much as possible. I think that we need to tell people about it. I want to write articles for newspapers. I want to give this talk in as many high-profile places as I can. Um, I think in the sort of medium term, I'd really like people to go and visit their MPs with this stuff. I want to make an A4 sheet you can take to your MPs' constituency surgery and say, here is what we spend on science, and show them the actual numbers and convince them that you want it increased. Um, and the reason that I'm targeting MPs' constituency sur surgeries is having chatted to uh, Julian Hopper, actually, the MP for Cambridge. He said that uh, the number of constituents that come to these surgeries with a policy issue uh, he can count on the fingers of one hand. So, for example, he's MP for Cambridge. He said that during the whole tuition fees thing, only one group of students came to any of his surgeries in order to talk about tuition fees. 
And partly that might be because he's a Lib Dem MP who'd made his position that he wasn't going to vote for uh, the rise very, very clear. But even so, that's a very small number. So I think if, uh, if enough of us start going and visiting our representatives, and not just MPs, but MEPs as well, because a lot of the science budget actually comes from Europe, then um, yeah, I think the politicians are going to start to realise that people care about this thing. And any suggestions are very much welcome. Anyone's got any brilliant ideas? Hello. Hi. Uh, you said I'd put my money on the table right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just wondering if, where is the kind of, the premise for all this has been like, let's get this money out of taxation, whether it might not be more effective if we kind of had a more extensive like research or science charity system that would allow people to directly put five pounds on fusion or whatever. I think, yeah, that's uh, definitely a possible avenue you could go down, but I think it's very, very hard. because So Cancer Research UK, as I said, is one of the biggest charities in the United Kingdom, and still it only comes to less than £5 per person per year. So if I think I can create a charity that's bigger than Cancer Research UK by a factor of about 20, then I'm talking. But I, I, I think I somehow feel as an individual the lowest hanging fruit is to try and convince politicians and the public that it's wise to fund this through government. But I'm def- definitely not averse to doing it through charity. I think the other um, sort of argument against charity funding is that it's very hard to convince people to give up their cash for certain kinds of funding. So obviously cancer, everyone's got a friend or a relative who's had cancer, it's a terrible disease, everyone's heard of it. But if you want to try and make a charity for quantum computing or something like that, then who's going to give their money for that, frankly, even though it's an area, you know, an area of basic science that who knows what results could come from it. Hi. Okay. Um, although I broadly agree with the underlying thesis you, you presented, there is one fact I wanted to mention. Um, there was some research conducted on how actually scientists engage with the public and the, the, uh, the dependence um, on funding. So basically before the, um, the Cold War, uh, let's say, or even earlier on, scientists were actively engaged in fundraising. Um, and the way to get your funding, to get your research funded, was to go out there and find you know, a private sponsor or convey to the public the meaning of your science, the results behind the science. And then everybody else got, uh, ever, everyone got scared about the Cold War and said, well, let's just give money to the government and then let the government give the money to the scientists, which created this ivory tower the scientists locked themselves in, meaning that the money were hanging very low, was hanging very low, and scientists didn't have to go out there and communicate their findings to the public. Um, do you not see that you're sort of partly suggesting enhancing this loop, saying that uh, the easier it is for scientists to get the money, the less need there is to actually go out there and explain to the public that what we do and why we do that and how um, the knowledge we create even in basic disciplines actually gets translated into real life benefits. I think, I think exactly the opposite actually in that I think the way that we're going to convince politicians and the public of the utility of science is by showing them not only these numbers but also what it is that science does. I think, um, you know, as I said in the talk, there's no point even giving £10 to cancer research if it's not going to cure anything. And just by looking at how much you have to invest in the sorts of work scientists are doing, I think by painting that picture to everyone, that's what's going to be going to be able to get this message through. I mean, whether you're trying to raise the money through charity or through public funding, you've got to convince the voters, you've got to convince the politicians that that's an important thing to do. So I think science communication is a really central part of doing that. Um, but... I think that if we were to try and revert to a system where scientists had to go out and win their own funding, that's very, very difficult because that requires uh, members of the general public to have such an advanced knowledge of you know, the kinds of research we're doing now is so far down the road um, that in order to have a realistic understanding of what it was they were funding, they'd need, to have, they'd need to have a lot of time to devote to it. And while that's a wonderful ideal, I'm not sure we'll ever get there. Does that answer your question? Have you got a follow-up question, or is that fine? <laughs> yes, another fact. So Germany tried to increase um, spending on science massively, and the problem they, they came across was that there aren't enough scientists. So they tried to, uh, to bring in some more um, legislation about um, how to make it easier for foreign scientists to actually get visas and come and work in Germany. Um, so I think investing in, in education is ultimately what we need to do as well because who is going to work in science so um, if you were to massively increase the amount of money going into science research it will increase waste more than it will increase the actual return on the science. I think it's definitely possible that we'll need more scientists at some point but at the moment if you look at the statistics for people who leave PhDs um, about half of them immediately hemorrhage off and cease to work in science they go and work in other areas of uh, the economy 
So I think we've got a massive untapped resource. And the other place in which we've got a massive untapped resource is in terms of people who leave after their first degree. So there are an awful lot of... I did a, a degree in physics here. And an awful lot of my contemporaries went into the city or went into accounting or went into consultancy. And this is an area of the economy that doesn't generate anything like as much wealth as science. So if we could use the increased money to make salaries more competitive and make science a more attractive place to work, that's another way in which you could get a lot more people who are currently doing something that isn't science into science. So your main measure was um, pounds per person per year. Um, but then you also showed us kind of projects which are sort of, if you like, global one-off costs. And if you look at the population of the UK, in global terms, it's actually quite small. So wouldn't we be better off trying to convince the American government or the Chinese government to invest more in space? Definitely. I mean, uh, pragmatically, I'm from the UK. I've got some vague understanding of the UK political system. I think that that's probably where my efforts are best directed. Um, but I'd really like to see this go international. I think the figures are very, very similar for lots of different countries. I'd like to see people who are more familiar with American politics uh, go up and look up. You know, this is a framework. They can look up these numbers for themselves and start a similar campaign in the States. And I also think that by changing uh, the priorities and strategies of individual nations, you know, you can, you can cause other nations to be inspired or to realise that that's a worthwhile thing to do. Because, um, you know, the US might look at the UK and see it playing a lot more money into science and think, well, if they're doing that, there must be something going on. And uh, uh, rearrange the priorities in their budget as well. I was just saying that the European Union had the target to um, to hit 2.9, I think, percent GDP um, on, pop, on science yeah, spend on science since the 1990s, but they never yes, got any There are actually there. only two countries in Europe that have uh, research. So the, the European target, the EUI target, is 3% per year on research and development, and that's government and private R&D combined. Uh, there are only two countries in the EU that exceed 3%, so accordingly you can imagine as, as a sort of union, the, the EU massively falls short of that. And one of the big problems is that individual countries haven't set big enough targets or don't have a target at all. So we in the UK are actually one of two countries in the EU that haven't even set a target for how much we should be spending on science research. Um, so you can't hit something you haven't aimed for. Uh, was there a question at the back there? It was about the politicisation of your argument, really, which was, um, so how do you take it further? You've, um, Andrew Steele, have a now a name in Oxford with regards to this. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but uh, how can you not make it just you? How can you make it a movement? I think the key is just telling people about this stuff. I, don't, I certainly don't want it to be just me on some mad um, vanity crusade. I really think that these numbers are sufficiently convincing that anyone who saw them would be shocked by them. And so I think that um, as well as you know, people giving talks to rooms full of people, it's really important this becomes a part of public discussion. I very much hope you guys will go home and tell your friends I saw this talk and all these shocking numbers. Um, so it isn't just uh, sort of didactic uh, situations like this in which the information is conveyed. I want it to become uh, an idea that really, really sort of underpins a lot of policy discussion in the same way as you know, a, lot, a lot of uh, political things do in the media at the moment. So I guess that's one possible solution. Sorry, can I add to that? Um, Many people who've come before will remember Mark Henderson, who came to speak a few months ago um, about his book called The Geek Manifesto, which is about getting scientists organized and engaged in the science process um, and using the Libel Form campaign as an indication of what we can manage if we actually get together. So... Maybe this is uh, the next big thing for the sceptic movement after libel reform is uh, squeezing more cash out of the government. That would be good, yeah, if you want to get on board. Um, <laughs> I'd be happy to have you. Anyone else? Excellent. No? Oh, hang on, there's one more. Just one additional point. I mean, the figures have given a very... A very um, uh, compelling, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to see you looked at it in, in, in such in such detail. Uh, I suppose one of the aspects that we talk about is disease prevalence and the impact on disease. It's actually very hard to distinguish between um, what would have happened without the research and what, what has happened, how much is the attributable benefit, in other words. But the other part that maybe needs to be emphasized is the importance of prevention. And, um, you know, I mean, you, you've talked about how many, how many life years are added to people with cancer, but um, I think it's also worth thinking about those people who have been prevented through various health measures from developing cancer. And I think one of the important things you could add to, to your equation is how much there's benefit from, for example, smoking prevention. Yeah. And um, public spending in that area. Um, I, I mean, maybe something to add to your... 
Yeah, definitely. I think so, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite sort of a mechanistic way of understanding medicine that we have drugs and those drugs make people better. Actually, public health research more broadly is responsible for a lot, a very, very large improvement in life expectancy. Um, and the way that a lot of these studies get around the first problem you mentioned, which is that um, it's hard to attribute, you know, so life expectancy in the developed world has increased by about, um, it's actually increasing by, I think, about four hours a day at the moment. So it's sort of, it is slowly accruing throughout the, and that's been going on for the last century or so. Um, the way that you can try and attribute bits of that to science, so it's obviously quite tricky because there's, you know, we've all got a lot wealthier, we've all started to eat a lot better. There have been a lot of public health campaigns that haven't actually uh, necessarily directly resulted from science. But uh, one way that you can get around that is by looking at individual drugs. So there was a, uh, a Brunel University study that looked at the returns on um, investment in heart disease research. And they found that for every pound we invest in heart disease research, you get 30 pence back every single year after their assets. So obviously a massive economic return. But the way that they calculated the um, effect that our research had had on heart disease was to do a systematic review of the literature and find what drugs and other interventions were being prescribed to patients with heart disease, find the clinical trials that had been used to prove that they were effective, and add up the number of years of life they each individually saved, multiplied by how many people were able to benefit from that treatment. So you can actually do it, you can either do it top down and try and work out how much of the life expectancy is attributable to uh, medicine, or the sort of more reliable way of doing it is to do it bottom up and do this mad, extremely long-winded process where you add up all the different med- things that medicine can do. So I think that's a reliable way of estimating it in that sense. Anyone else? Then I will just say thank you once again to Dr. Andrew Steele for, for a fantastic talk. <laughs>